Take your Bible and turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 will serve as sort of our jumping off point this evening. This evening we're beginning the third mini-series in our study of the millennium. And remember that I mentioned in the opening message of this entire study that we're really building a pyramid here with lots and lots of big stones as the foundation so that when we begin to actually look at specific topics and biblical passages in detail related to the millennium, it's going to be second nature to you. And in later messages, we're going to examine in detail dozens, all caps, dozens of millennium passages and even the numbers of surveys of entire Bible books. But over the past number of messages, I've attempted to prove to you the fallacy of amillennialism in the last miniseries. And uh, Pastor Darren just said he was glad that series was over because it's hard to think up songs about what you don't believe. So we're all glad to move on from that. But it is a foundation that's necessary because you need to have answers. Because remember, amillennialism is the default view of the majority of Reformed Christianity. And so you need to have those answers. But I'm very confident in you. I'm confident in our church that you want to understand the Word of God as deeply as possible, that you want to abandon a purely sentimental use of Scripture. And so one of my goals in this series really is that the hope of the coming millennium is so palpable, so real, so tangible, so detailed, so imprinted in your mind that you can almost taste it and see it and that it's, that it's very real to you. That my hope, honestly, is that as you approach the end of your lives, that the thought of Christ's coming kingdom becomes overwhelming to you. And that's what I would like to see happen. And so to continue those large building stones to build this pyramid, over the next four messages, I'd like to examine what I'm calling premillennial foundations. Premillennial foundations. And there's really two significant questions that I want to answer. And these are very reasonable questions. The first question is, who else believed that Christ is coming to physically reign over a literal kingdom on earth featuring a restored Israel? That's a reasonable question. And the big question is, how did we arrive at these conclusions? What were the methods that we used to understand Scripture from this vantage point? And so really what I'll be doing is two messages in two parts each. Tonight and next time, I'll look at the legacy of premillennialism. And in the following two messages in this little mini-series will be the methods of premillennialism. But tonight and next time, I want to look at the legacy of premillennialism. And just to get our thoughts going in the right direction... Consider some key passages from Psalm 89, verses 1 through 4. I will sing of the loving kindness of Yahweh forever. From generation to generation, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. I have cut a covenant with my chosen I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne from generation to generation. Now, what is the key feature of these verses? The key feature is a forever covenant with David to establish his offspring forever on a throne. What nation is at the center of that throne? Verse 18. 
For our shield belongs to Yahweh and our king to the Holy One of Israel. That's the center of the throne. And where is this throne? Is this a heavenly throne? Is this an ethereal throne? Is this a spiritualized throne? Where is it? Verse 27. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the, what? Earth. That's where the throne is. Now I use the word legacy of premillennialism because I fear that you may groan at the word history. And so that's why the title in the bulletin is Legacy because I wanted to get you here before I told you that this is history. Now to be fair, this isn't really so much a set of sermons as really a foundational understanding of who has believed premillennialism and why we believe premillennialism. And you know, it's interesting to me that when men training for the gospel ministry go to seminary, we are required to take multiple classes in, in some call it historical theology. The older term was church history. We have to take classes. We have to memorize dates. We have to read stacks of books. We have to understand this. But then you get to the church, and generally speaking, American evangelicalism, I believe, is completely ignorant of church history. That, that we're disconnected from our past. And why would we say that history is important? I would say that church history is important because God thinks it's important. We have an entire inspired book of our Bible that is an inspired early church history, and that is, of course, the book of Acts. And so rather than all the hard work that church historians and historical theologians have done uh, for centuries being reduced down to the occasional quote from John Calvin in a sermon... We need to understand who we are, where we came from. And so I'd like to spend some time doing that this evening. And I want to tell you that the usefulness of this message toward the end is going to be very apparent because our delving into the legacy of premillennialism, this has an immediate application to our lives, but we have to get through some history first to understand that. And I'm going to finish our time this evening on that useful application because it is a tremendous example that we have from our forefathers in the faith. But to get our thoughts moving in the right direction, let me ask this question. Why does the history or the legacy of premillennialism, why does it matter? Who cares? This is just history. Cornelius P. Venema, he's an amillennial theologian. I've quoted him before. He's the author of what many consider really the premier systematic theology on amillennialism. It's called The Promise of the Future. He wrote this concerning the history of dispensationalism, which is highly connected to premillennialism. This is what he wrote. The story of modern dispensationalism begins around 1825 and is associated with an Irishman by the name of John Nelson Darby. He was a clergyman in the Church of England. So Darby would eventually become the founder of the Plymouth Brethren. Venema then cites Cyrus Schofield, C.I. Schofield more popularly, in the Schofield Reference Bible, published in 1909, as a major factor in spreading the belief in dispensationalism. Now, Venema is correct. His facts are accurate. But I'm pointing out that this is generally a pattern in so many amillennial explanations of premillennialism that dispensationalism really got its start in 1825 which in terms of theology means it's infantile. It's a, it's a baby. Now, you can't separate dispensationalism from premillennialism. Neither of those labels have existed for very long, but the beliefs behind them 
have, and I know I'm throwing a lot of words out, so just to review here, dispensationalism can be boiled down to three basic beliefs, and really two, but the first one is, is kind of uh, foundational, but we'll go ahead and number them three. The first belief is that God has always saved people by faith, but in different administrations or different dispensations. For example, of administrations, there is the time before the flood, there is the time of the patriarchs, the time of Israel, the time of the church, the coming time of the great tribulation, the coming time of Christ's reign on earth. God has always saved people by faith, but in different administrations. The study of all the dispensations is interesting, but that's not really the main idea behind dispensationalism anymore, to be honest. The final two are the main ideas. The final two ideas are, are, are not hard to understand. This is dispensationalism. First, Scripture is to be taken literally from a historical, grammatical hermeneutic from Genesis to Revelation. That the Bible is interpreted the same way from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. You don't change methods depending on your theology. And the second main idea, God's promises to Israel are irrevocable. And that's based on Romans 11.29, which says that God's promises to Israel are irrevocable. That's dispensationalism, and it's connected at the hip with premillennialism. And so the basic argument often given is that covenant theology, which most often includes amillennialism, is older than dispensationalism, which most often includes premillennialism, and so that's presented as proof of its correctness, that what we believe is older than what you believe. 1825 is when what you believe started. It had its genesis with John Nelson Darby. A broad look, though, would find that the history of dispensational theology and premillennialism, even several non-premillennial scholars acknowledge the dominance of premillennialism in the early church. And we're going to get to that here in a bit. But others who can't stomach that have attempted to deny this history. There is a a huge movement, and it's getting bigger, that the church actually had a large group of, the early church rather, had a large group of amillennialists, and premillennialism is actually an error in the church simply borrowed from late Judaism. That that premillennialism, yeah, it existed, but it was an error. Most people in the early church were amillennial. What is that movement based on? Get ready for this. That theory is based on one book by one man who takes six chapters of an early church father, Irenaeus, completely out of context to try to demonstrate that the early church was actually amillennial. Irenaeus was premillennial. So if you ask him, he would say, excuse me, that's not what I meant. That is, that is like taking the, just some little grain of sand and building an entire city on it. It's impossible. Now, I'm going to refute that theory later on tonight or maybe next time. In 2020, a scholar by the name of Craig Blazing, he destroyed this theory. I mean, it's like, like bullets and dynamite all over the place. He wrote a scholarly article called Early Christian Millennialism and the Intermediate State. And he takes that argument and picks it apart to where you couldn't even put the pieces back together again. It's a brilliant work. So, back to our original idea. What is our spiritual legacy theologically? Is the idea of Christ coming to reign on this earth on his throne in Jerusalem in the restored Israel over all the nations of the earth? Is that the product of some crazy idea in relatively recent theological speculation? 
Or is your legacy a little bit deeper than that? So what I'd like to do is look at some old family photos together, if we could put it that way. I'm going to give you some labels. Here's the first label. We're going to start going backwards in time. And so the first label is premillennialism in the 19th to 21st centuries. Premillennialism in the 19th to 21st centuries. In other words, the 1800s to the 2000s. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the legacy of premillennialism after 1825. Uh, we could talk about Moody Bible Institute, which was founded in 1886, extremely premillennial. We could talk about Dallas Theological Seminary in 1924. That became the flagship for premillennial dispensational theology. We could talk about the Master Seminary founded in 1986. But let me just hit a few highlights. And this is my, the, the one I really want to hit for the 21st century. In the 21st century, there are numerous Jewish Christian ministries, such as Jews for Jesus, Chosen People Ministries, Light of Messiah Ministries, Messianic Jewish Alliance of America, Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, One for Israel, and Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. What percentage of them are premillennial? 100%. They're all premillennial. The Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry has one of the more robust doctrinal statements and it really represents the others. And I've read the doctrinal statements from every one of those ministries I listed. Here's their statement. First on Israel, then on eschatology. And they list a, a bunch of scriptures here I won't give to you because we'll get to those either in this message or, or later. Concerning Israel... We believe that Israel is God's chosen national people. In God's sovereign will, Israel serves as a channel of His blessing to the entire world for His glory and His witness to the nations. God's election of Israel for this unique relationship is irrevocable. We believe Israel is distinct from the church and central to God's plan, past, present, and future. The unfulfilled prophecies given to Israel in the Old Testament will find their literal fulfillment in Israel at a future time. Then eschatology. We believe in the premillennial, pre-tribulational return of Jesus Christ. This means that Christ's return for His bride, the church, is imminent and therefore can happen at any moment. We believe that following the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, or the time of Jacob's trouble will take place. We believe that following the tribulation, the millennium will begin. It will be brought about by the literal physical, visible, bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth to rule and to reign for 1,000 years. Every Jewish Christian organization that I'm aware of believes this. This is very important to them because when an amillennialist says, well, the Old Testament doesn't mean what it used to, say that to a Jew face to face and you would have an argument and rightly so. Going back to the 19th and 20th centuries, I, I just want to touch on one important premillennialist of the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a Calvinist pastor and theologian. He taught a definite restoration of Israel. He said this, It is also certain that the Jews as a people will yet own Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, as their king, and that they will soon return to their own land. In 1864, Spurgeon preached a sermon called The Restoration and Conversion of the Jews. And he preached this literally from Ezekiel 37. And from this text, he said, This must not be spirited or spiritualized away. 
The ten and the twelve, the two and the ten tribes of Israel, rather, are to be restored to their own land, and that a king is to rule over them. Between 1800 and 1875, over 2,000 authors wrote about Israel. But the 20th century, that got even bigger. There was an explosion of interest in Israel by Christians, and this was brought on by two events. The first one was the Holocaust which forced Christians to re-examine their doctrinal beliefs concerning the Jews. And the second event was the re-establishment of Israel as a sovereign nation. This was eye-opening to show that this is at least possible because for the first time in the history of the world, a nation that had not been a nation for almost 2,000 years regained control of its historic land, or at least a small part of it. That's never happened before or since. But no one debates the recent history of premillennialism, so I didn't want to spend a lot of time on that. But most amillennialists will say what we believe about the coming of Christ basically started in 1825. So I want to begin a journey tonight, and there's too much to do tonight. We'll continue it next time, back in time. And let's see how far we can go before we hit the wall of, oops, there's no premillennialism anymore. Let's see how far we can go. The next title I'll give you we'll call Premillennialism in England. Premillennialism in England in the 17th and 18th centuries. This is the 1600s and the 1700s. And so we're in the the two centuries before 1825. Just in the last few years, Dr. William Watson, who's a professor of English history, he wrote a massive volume citing over 400 sources. I love this title. It's called Dispensationalism Before Darby. And in 350 pages or so, he absolutely demolishes the myth that dispensationalism basically began with John Nelson Darby in 1825. Let me just give you a few samples of the important dispensationalists who were pre-millennial in the 17th and 18th centuries in England. There was John Bershentia. In 1660, John Bershentia wrote The History of Scripture. This is a book, and he divided history into various biblical ages and he used this word, dispensations. He urged his readers against the error of applying prophecies meant for Israel to themselves. That's classic dispensationalism that prophecies to Israel don't go to us, it goes to them. There was William Elaine, sometimes called William Allen. He wrote a book called The State of the Church in Future Ages in the 1670s. He taught that the first age of the Jews ended at the death of Christ and the age of the Gentiles began. But the second age of the Jews will begin again when God gathers them from the earth at the same time Antichrist is defeated. He says this, The conversion of that nation as a new birth will be extraordinary and much to admiration and astonishment in respect of the suddenness and shortness of the time. So often has God promised to bring them back again into this land which he gave them by an everlasting covenant. Now, his conclusion about the the relative suddenness of the regathering of Israel came from Isaiah 66, 8, which says, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be brought forth through labor pains in one day? Can a nation be born all at once? As soon as Zion was in labor pains, she also gave birth to her sons. What is that saying? That's saying that the regathering of Israel is going to happen really fast. And he taught that in the 1670s. Or we could consider Richard Hayter, H-A-Y-T-E-R. 
he wrote in 1675 the meaning of Revelation. This was a, a commentary on the book of Revelation, and he had one goal. His goal was to prove that a literal interpretation of the book of Revelation was the only appropriate way, and he was fighting against what he called mystical interpretations. Today we would call that spiritualizing the text. He took Revelation as centering on Jerusalem. Now, that was actually quite a, a, a controversial position to take because many took that the book of Revelation centered on London or on England or at least on Europe because we tend to apply theology to ourselves. For Richard Hayter, Revelation was simply a chronological record of future events except the letters to the seven churches which occur at the time of John's writing of Revelation. That's our view today. Well, we are in America, though, so let's cross the Atlantic. Let's go back to the time of the American colonies, specifically the American Puritans. And if you're writing any headings down, I'll call this one premillennialism in the American colonies. Generally, when the, the subject of American Puritans is discussed, it's assumed that the overwhelming ideal was that the Americas were to be the place where millennial hopes could be realized, that God's redemptive plan for the world would be in America rather than in Israel. And there is evidence that American pastors at the time of the Revolution were interpreting events as a millennial event happening in America. That's not completely without rationale because what was happening in America was a first in the history of the world. And so I, I can sort of understand that, but again, we never teach theology because History tells us what's right. History only confirms Scripture, not the other way around. But what about before the American Revolution? I, I didn't pay much attention to history in school. I, I wish I had because it didn't seem to go anywhere for me. Um, I, I sort of pictured that in about December of 1775, a whole bunch of people showed up, and in 1776, we had a big war, and that's all I knew. But the American colonies were, were populated for a couple of hundred years before that time. So you had, for example, John Cotton. John Cotton was born in 1585. He died in 1652. He was one of the earliest pastors in New England. He was part of the, the Puritan purge in England when the Archbishop of Canterbury was getting rid of all the Calvinist pastors. And so Cotton came to the Massachusetts Bay Colony and he began preaching in Massachusetts. In 1642, his first work on eschatology, on the study of the end times, was published and it was an exposition of Revelation 16. It was basically an excoriating judgment on the Catholic Church, and he interpreted Revelation 16 as primarily being about the evils of the Roman Catholic Church, and in particular the Pope, whom he identified as Antichrist, which, by the way, historically, dispensationalists have pointed to the Pope as Antichrist. They're not correct, but their heart is in the right place. His basic logic was that because evil is still in the world, the millennium, the kingdom of God, cannot be happening, but it must still be in the future. That's in 1642. Or John Davenport, 1597 to 1670. He was a prominent London pastor. He was also persecuted and purged, and so he came to the new world. He was a premillennialist who taught his congregation that Christ would come to judge the world with the armies of heaven following him and then set up his kingdom on earth. A friend of John Davenport named William Hook, born in 1600 and lived till 1677, he was a pastor in New Haven, Connecticut. In 
he wrote with clarity that it's a mistake to try to ascribe Old Testament prophecies to England or to America. The prophecies of the Old Testament concern Israel and the coming salvation of Israel as a whole. He wrote, quote, The great and settled glory of the church on earth will not be before the coming of Christ to judgment. He taught that the believer in Christ should expect a full return of saved Israel to their own land. In fact, Hook wrote in a preface to a book. The book was written by another Puritan, which I'll tell you about in a minute. In 1669, this book was called The Mystery of Israel's Salvation. And Hook wrote a long uh, preface to this, and it could easily be mistaken for a 21st century explanation of premillennialism. He wrote that the Lord will come to build up Jerusalem and save all of Israel. He identified Antichrist as the man of sin, the lawless one, and that during the time of Antichrist, during the great tribulation, at the very end, the spiritual eyes of the Jews will be opened. They will believe on Jesus, their Messiah. He described the battle of Armageddon as the place where all the great kings of the world will gather for battle, but Christ will return and crush them all and take over his world. These and and many other details from his lengthy preface It could have been a premillennial theology written this year. It's that accurate, that up to date. The author of the book, The Mystery of Israel's Salvation, was another Puritan pastor. His name is Increase Mather. Interesting name. I wonder if he had a brother named Decrease. I've always wondered that. But Increase Mather, he wrote a separate preface to his own book, and he gives a scathing, long rebuttal to ancient accusations that belief in the literal kingdom of Christ on earth was somehow new, somehow novel. Mather wrote a later work in 1709, keeping in mind that Puritan titles are really long. It was called Dissertation Concerning the Future Conversion of the Jewish Nation. And he was actually refuting his fellow Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, who insisted that almost all of Bible prophecy was already fulfilled by the time of Emperor Constantine in the 4th century. But Mather, Increase Mather, he wrote of premillennialism. Quote, Some say it is novelty and thereupon dislike it. But it is ancienter than Justin Martyr. It is an apostolic truth. We could consider William Torrey, T-O-R-R-E-Y. He was a pastor in Weymouth, Massachusetts for most of the late 1600s. And he wrote in 1687 a book called The Brief Discourse Concerning futurities, that's not a word we use anymore, a brief discourse concerning futurities or things to come. And he put together a biblical timeline of future events. The salvation of the Jews right before the great persecution and preparations for the battle of Armageddon, the coming of Christ visibly in the clouds, the defeat and judgment of Antichrist, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, the resurrection of the lost from all the ages and the final judgment of the lost. He used Jeremiah and Ezekiel to teach on the restoration of Israel that there will be, as he put it, quote, a time when God would gather the Jews out of all countries and bring them to their land, which is yet future. How old is that order of events? That could be published tomorrow and be exactly up to date. Cotton Mather was the son of Increase Mather. Apparently the Mathers went in for really odd names. Cotton Mather lived from 1663 to 1728. He was probably the clearest teacher in that time on premillennialism. He taught particularly a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, followed by tribulation, followed by the, the opening of the eyes of Israel, 
then the return of Christ. And he gave tremendous evidence. He was quite a church historian as well. The premillennialism goes all the way back to the first generation of the church. And I have to mention him, even though you've heard from him a lot today. Jonathan Edwards, 1703 to 1758. Didn't live very long, but he was an American pastor and theologian. He was post-millennial. He believed that the, the, the earth, the church would bring the kingdom of Christ in, but he heartily believed that Israel would be converted as a nation. They would be fully restored, gathered geographically into a glorious nation. And he cited Romans 11 as his proof. So that's what happens. It was happening during the time of the American colonies. But this is also simultaneous to what's happening in Europe. This is in the the second and third generation after the Reformation. So let's cross the Atlantic again. And let's go back here again. You know, you can hang a picture on the one, a wall with one nail. I'd like to put about 50 in it to make sure this sticks on the wall. Let's, let's title this the second generation after the Great Reformation. Because you've heard me say that the Reformers, almost to a man, were amillennial. What happened in the second generation, though? The Geneva Bible, which was first published in 1560, included in the 1581 edition much more positive views of Israel in the editor's notes. There was a softening towards Israel. For example, commenting on Romans 11.26, the editors affirmed that Israel as a nation has a definite future. The 17th century, the 1600s in Europe, saw a huge resurgence in interest in studying the future of Israel and the Jews. This was suddenly a very popular thing. And why is this? Well, there was a couple of reasons. First of all, more and more people could actually read the Bible in their own language as a result of the Reformation. And so people who previously had just for almost a thousand years had to rely on the priests of the Catholic Church to just tell them what they said was true, but now they had Bibles of their own. They had access to translated Bibles and greater access to learning Hebrew, learning the original language, and so interest in the Old Testament and the future of Israel exploded. Now, for English Puritans, eventually, as church historian Ian Murray says, he says, belief in the future conversion of the Jews became commonplace. At the time of the Reformation, it wasn't. But very quickly in the second generation, it became commonplace. Why? Because regular people were simply reading their Bibles and believing what it says. But just to note a few English Puritans, Thomas Brightman 1552 to 1607, he was an English pastor. He wrote his own commentary on Revelation. And he wrote of Israel, Shall they return to Jerusalem again? There is nothing more certain. The prophets do everywhere confirm it and beat upon it. William Perkins lived from 1558 to 1602, which if I'm doing my math correctly, he only lived to be about 44. You know that William Perkins for me personally, is one of my top five examples of the greatest preachers who ever lived. He lived to be 44 years old. Uh, His preaching is still looked upon as a model today. But he was an English Puritan pastor and he predicted a future for Israel in his sermons on the end times and he was passionate about this as a Puritan. Many Puritans followed in the footsteps of the Reformers, but many did not. One theologian wrote, belief in the restoration of Israel was now common. Those Puritans who held to the restoration of Israel in the future, they saw the national conversion of Israel to Christ as 
what has to happen before the second coming. And, and you might say, why do we care about Israel? Who cares? Let's just talk about Jesus. Jesus is the king of what nation? Israel. Jesus cared about Israel. When he came to this earth, what did he say about his ministry? That I came first to the lost sheep of California? No, of Israel. That's his priority. In Holland, the Dutch Reformed Church had representative pre-millennial ministers. William Abrockel, 1635 to 1711, he was a Dutch Reformed minister in Holland. He taught that the Jewish nation would be gathered to dwell physically in the actual promised land featuring a rebuilt Jerusalem. Petrus Serarius, 1600 to 1699, literally lived the entire 17th century, was also Dutch Reformed. He argued that you must believe that Israel is coming back. So have we found a stopping point yet? A, a point of origin for premillennialism that, oh, this is where it started. No, we haven't seen that yet. From today, going back so far to the 1500s, we see premillennialism. Now, we haven't found a stopping point in terms of origin, but there is a massive pause in premillennialism, and it coincides basically with the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, the height and control of the powerful Roman Catholic Church that essentially controlled all religious life in Europe. As the early church progressed in the, in the centuries after the Apostles, as we get to the time of Augustine, and I've talked about him in other messages, other views of the millennium began creeping in. But that went from creeping in to now total takeover from about 14, or 450 all the way to the Reformation officially beginning in 1517. Dr. Michael Vlock writes that the church, quote, almost exclusively went the way of a strong replacement theology that left little place for a future restoration of Israel. Now, lest anybody say, well, that's proof that all millennialism is true. No, it's proof that the Roman Catholic religion absolutely exercised total control over every church in Europe. That's what that proves. And primarily because of the influence of Augustine, the church fully advocated amillennial theology, which now made Jesus' kingdom a spiritual kingdom happening now through the church. And during that era, almost no theologian in this era held a positive view of Jews or of Israel. And again, you would say, well, almost no theologian believed in premillennialism, so maybe it's not actually true. Now, to be a theologian, you had to be sponsored by the Catholic Church. And to be sponsored by the Catholic Church, you had to be amillennial. So that's why you don't see many theologians, because nobody knew who they were. Even the greatest of all the reformers, Martin Luther, he wrote sternly, quote, Listen, Jew, are you aware that Jerusalem and your sovereignty, together with your temple and priesthood, have been destroyed for over 1,460 years? For such ruthless wrath of God is sufficient evidence that they assuredly have erred and gone astray. Therefore, this work of wrath is proof that the Jews, surely rejected by God, are no longer his people, and neither is he any longer their God. Now, what was Luther's mistake? He used history to determine theology, not the Bible. History was his hermeneutic. He says it. He says that the history of the Jews proves that, that God is no longer their God. We don't ever use history as a hermeneutic. We use it to support what Scripture says. 
So tragically and coinciding with the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, premillennialism was virtually non-existent for almost a thousand years. But what if we go back further? What if we go back to the time from the death of the apostles to the Council of Nicaea in AD 325? That era is called the Anti-Nicene Age. Anti, not anti, but A-N-T-E-Nicene, N-I-C-E-N-E. It just means the time before the Council of Nicaea. What about that time? I'm going to wait till next time to get into that because this is, this is the big one. This is the one that absolutely is the linchpin for the argument that premillennialism used to be the norm for the church of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to do that next time. We're also going to go back to what did New Testament people believe? What did people who knew the apostles believe? And then we're going to end with what did the Jews believe for 200 years before Christ? So we're going to take it back to the time before Christ. But I told you at the beginning of our time tonight that the usefulness of this message, I I would show it to you, our our delving into the legacy of premillennialism is way more important than just a history lesson. It has immediate application for our lives and that is specifically in the area of evangelism. Let me explain what I mean. In the early church, and I'm giving, giving away the cookies just a little bit here, but in the early church, premillennialism, the belief that Jesus Christ was coming to reign, this was so ingrained in the theology and the practice of the church, the idea that Christ was returning at any moment to set up his kingdom, and that if you were not in Christ when he returns, you would be left out of the kingdom. It, it was absolutely part and parcel of everything they preached. And I want to quote a, a theologian for this reason. There are several reasons. First of all, he's not premillennial. He was a liberal German theologian of the early 20th century, so he has no skin in this game whatsoever. He couldn't care less. He was simply a church historian. And here's what he wrote about premillennialism. He wrote this. His name is Adolf Harnack. He said, quote, first in point of time came the faith in the nearness of Christ's second advent, his second coming, and the establishing of his reign of glory on the earth. Indeed, it appears so early that it might be questioned whether it ought not to be regarded as an essential part of the Christian religion. It must be admitted that this expectation was a prominent feature in the earliest proclamation of the gospel and materially contributed to his, his, its success. Uh, In in other words, what do I mean by this? Premillennialism, Harnock says, happened so early in the life of the church that it should be considered part of essential Christian doctrine. That if you believe in the cross and the Trinity and all the doctrines of grace, then you must also be premillennial. That they're that married together. And he said that premillennialism explains the success of the advancement of the gospel during the first centuries of the church. That that was the impetus for sharing the gospel. That the kingdom of Christ could come any time. Let me put it this way. Let me give you a a premillennial gospel presentation. We would say mankind is guilty before God of total rebellion and sin. Therefore, Each individual person owes a debt to God because the wages of sin is death. And in response to this, God sent His 
one and only Son to die on the cross as payment for that sin death, that sin debt for all who would receive Christ. And Jesus was raised from the dead as the first fruits of all who would follow him. And while he was on earth, Jesus gave an invitation that all who were weary and heavy laden with the guilt of their sin were to come freely to Christ and by faith they could be justified. They could be made to officially possess the righteousness of Christ in the eyes of the courts of heaven. But the same Christ who humbly died for the sins of all who would believe on him and was raised from the dead, this same Christ ascended into heaven. And there is coming a day in which he will return and he will take vengeance on his enemies on the earth. He will set up his complete and total rule as the king of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. And if a person knows this message and rejects Christ, when Christ returns, you will not partake in, the, partake in this glorious kingdom. You will not be a part of it. You will not be a part of the joy ruled by the Prince of Peace, the joy of this world that's just full of peace and full of, of, of incredible blessings and benefits. You won't be part of the kingdom. Instead, you'll be in the place of the dead, awaiting resurrection unto judgment at the end of a thousand years. You'll have a thousand years to wait and to know that the next time you see Jesus, it will be as your judge when you stand before the great white throne. And you will appear before Christ at the great white throne. All of your sins will be read aloud and you will be justly condemned to an eternity in the lake of fire. In other words, the evangelism of the early church was motivated by the imminence of the coming kingdom, that it could come any day. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he's teaching on the rapture of the church, in great hope, I believe, he uses a plural pronoun that we will be caught up together. There was great hope. There was an urgency to evangelism because the kingdom could be any day. Christ did not tell those of the church age, here are the signs to look for of my return. He told those that would be in the great tribulation after the rapture of the church, here are the signs of my return, because the clock is ticking at seven years. But we don't have any of those signs. It could be today. It could be tonight. It could be any time. And the early church was so ingrained with this belief that's why the Thessalonian church, for example, a church made up of all brand new believers is called the greatest evangelizing church of all time. They spread the gospel all over the known world. Why? Because from their vantage point, Christ could be coming any moment. And he would set up this kingdom and anyone who doesn't know Christ would be judged and cast aside until the great judgment at the great white throne. And so in the early church, what was the gospel message? It was the same message that Jesus began his ministry with. Repent for the what? Kingdom of heaven is at hand. My prayer for our church is that our evangelism is bolstered by and made robust by a concern that the lost have the opportunity to be in the coming kingdom of Christ on earth. That we don't just say, Come to Jesus so he can forgive you of your sins. That's just the first part of the gospel. The gospel goes all the way to the end of time. Come to Christ so that he may forgive you of your sins, that you may have new life, and that you may participate in a glorious kingdom that is to come because you are already part of a kingdom. You're part of the kingdom of darkness. 
And you will remain in that kingdom unless you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. All people will be part of a kingdom. I want to be on the winning kingdom. That's the gospel message. And my prayer for you is that your evangelism is made robust by telling those that don't know Christ, do you you think our world's in good shape? Do you you think things are going great here? I, I think anybody with a brain would say, no, it's not going great. Would you like to be part of a kingdom where it's all going to go great? Because that's what's coming. And here's how to be a part. So you see, your premillennialism isn't just some dusty theological argument that you have at Starbucks over a $15 coffee. It is part and parcel of who we are. It is part and parcel of the gospel. Because the gospel is about making it out of the old world alive and making it into the new kingdom. I hope that's helpful to you in your evangelism. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this time we've had this evening. We've read the names of many glorious brothers in Christ. Almost all of them we read tonight are with you now. They have received their reward and they're eagerly awaiting that day when Christ will return and they will be part of those that are in the great armies of heaven listed in Revelation 19. And sooner than we may realize, we will join them. And so, Lord, I pray that while we are here on the front lines of evangelism on this earth, while we are the ones representing Christ, their their job is done, but ours is not. While we take the baton, while we carry the torch, may we point the lost toward a glorious coming kingdom that the lost may participate in if they will worship the King. And it's in the King's name we pray. Amen.